The Race to Deep Space and Intergalactic Microwave Ovens? You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The Race to Deep Space is on. NASA has its eyes set on the moon, then Mars, and other private companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin have ambitious plans to send humans into deep space. So just how close are we to breaking the bonds of Earth's gravity once more and exploring other worlds? We'll speak with Mary Lynn Dittmar. She's the president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration. Then, astronomers are picking up a strange signal from somewhere in space. Fast radio bursts are puzzling scientists. Where are they coming from and what's causing them? On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we'll ask our panel of experts about these interesting new waves. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the space news stories making headlines. Boeing is changing the way it tests software on its new space capsule, Starliner. The move comes after a software error cut short a recent uncrewed test mission. The software bug messed up Starliner's internal clock, causing it to fire its engines incorrectly. The capsule used too much fuel, which prevented it from docking with the International Space Station. A report from the Orlando Sentinel found Boeing skipped a full test of the onboard software, instead testing the mission's software in chunks. Boeing Vice President John Mulholland says going forward, that will change. We are going to run uh, the full launch to docking scenario. So we run all the way through launch to docking. A NASA and Boeing investigation is still combing through more than one million lines of code to see if there were other software errors. An update on the joint investigation is expected later this week. Think you have what it takes to head to the moon or Mars? NASA is accepting applications for the next group of astronauts. The requirements? Applicants must be U.S. citizens, hold at least a master's degree in a STEM discipline, and have two years of professional experience in a STEM field, or 1,000 hours piloting a jet aircraft. Candidates will also have to pass an astronaut physical. NASA recently graduated 11 new astronauts last month. They were selected from a record-setting pool of 18,000 applicants back in 2017. The agency says the next group of astronauts can apply this month, and will start training mid-2021. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit our website, wmfe.org space, and give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. The race to deep space is on. NASA has its eyes set on the moon, then Mars, and other private companies have ambitious plans to send humans into deep space. So just how close are we to breaking the bonds of Earth's gravity once more and exploring other worlds? Well, joining us by Skype is Dr. Mary Lynn Dittmar. She's the president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration and begins the conversation talking about the state of deep space exploration today and where we're heading. I think we're in a really exciting place. Um... I think people have been waiting for a while to get to this place, so it's wonderful to see it uh, all beginning to come together. Uh, We have the NASA programs for deep space exploration uh, coming on, beginning to come online. They're in their final major testing uh, protocols. So we have Orion, which is actually just completed a lot of its testing protocol up at Plumbrook at near NASA Glen in Ohio. We have the Space Launch System, which has been moved to the Stennis Center, NASA Center um, in Mississippi, and has already completed some modal tests and is uh, going through just a whole series of tests leading up to a hot fire, um, which is what people think about when they think about the green run. 
And then down at the Cape, uh, there's a lot of infrastructure, both hardware and software IT, that is uh, also being uh, completed and tested and actually being exercised right now. Uh, KSC just did a launch simulation series um, a couple of weeks ago that involved a lot of that software and that IT backbone. So all these things are beginning to come together eventually, hopefully by the end of this year, uh, we'll have all of the elements down at the Cape and we'll be in the process of doing testing and, and integration there. So that's, that's one thing. Um, another thing is that we have all kinds of efforts going on on the science and robotics side, both uh, at NASA in terms of programs that are being developed to work on the, the lunar surface, as well as a number of entrepreneurial firms that are involved both in low Earth orbit and um, targeting the cislunar environment uh, to do everything from uh, research and development to sort of pure biological science to uh, regolith development and mining on the surface of the moon, see if we can find out what sorts of materials are there that we might be able to use for sustainable human presence. So across the board, um, there's a tremendous amount of activity, and it's really exciting. Getting to this point, the SLS rocket, the Orion spacecraft, the ground exploration systems here at Kennedy Space Center, pardon the pun, but that was a heavy lift to get all of that together, right? I mean, <laughs> this was a really big collaboration of all these different companies and organizations coming together. How did we get here? How long has this story been playing out? It's been going on for about a decade. I mean, you know, give it just depends on how you count it and where you start the clock. And so rather than getting into that debate, let's just sort of throw a big brush at it. Um, the uh, essentially what what is involved in all of this is, you know, we haven't built no one has built a rocket with this kind of capability since Apollo. Um, and so it's the expertise to do that, you know, and everything's changed since Paula, right? The materials have changed, um, the means for doing design and development. I mean, even CAD modeling, we don't start to think about it at that kind of a level, but right. Um, everything has changed um, in terms of how it is that we do this. So it's not like we can say, OK, we're just going to go pull the plans for the Saturn V and rebuild it. Right. Um, what are the requirements for this rocket? How do we see it evolving over the long term? And then you start at some point and you have to start with actually first building the facilities to allow the thing to be built. So in terms of hardware, the first hardware everybody thinks about is actually the rocket or the engines or whatever. But really, you have to build the capability to do the build. So that. That started many years ago um, for all these vehicles and, you know, sort of get that laid in first and then actually start the process. And the first time through any rocket, anybody will tell you any vehicle like this, any big piece of hardware, actually even a small piece of hardware, any any first time through this is essentially a research and development effort. So you design according to what it is you want this thing to turn out to be. But if you're trying to do something that hasn't been done for a long time or hasn't ever been done, um, sometimes you're really just trying some things for the first time. So it, it took a really long time, um, I think to get all this done and, um, but yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're finally there. So it's, it's exciting to see it. Not quite there, but I mean, getting there. So it's really exciting to see it. And now, as you say, we're finally getting in there. All this hardware is coming together. It seems like there's this other mission that NASA has been put in charge of, uh, something for else for NASA to deal with, which is landing humans on the surface of the moon using the Lunar Gateway. Now, this seems like another kind of complicated piece of hardware that has to be designed and developed and built from the ground up. 
How do you see the prospects of the gateway playing out in this grand scheme of deep space exploration? So I'm going to take just a step back to start to answer this question. Um, One of the struggles having to do with human space exploration and deep space exploration is it has so many attributes that it's difficult to talk about it. So if you want to talk about the gateway as a standalone um, uh, you know, vehicle or structure or mini station or however you want to do it, um, what you end up doing is talking about, well, what's its function, right? So the function of, this, of the gateway is it's been described as a command and control module. It's also been described as a um, sort of a location to aggregate hardware, in other words, to put hardware together. It's also been described as um, a facility that will help um, refueling of rockets once we reach the point where we're doing reusability there. Um, for me, what it what it's what's interesting about it is where it is. Um, it's parked, okay, in any one of several orbits. It can move orbits back and forth, and the orbits that it's and it can go so it can go to different locations over the surface of the moon. So depending on how you want to use this thing, it's sort of like a Swiss Army knife, right? Um, you can use it for any one of those different functions. You can also use it to stage in a lot of different locations. But the orbit that it's parked in turns out to be a great transfer orbit. So if what, and there's a bunch of these orbits, a whole lot of these orbits. And so... Marilyn, what does that mean? What, what is a transfer orbit? So a transfer orbit um, is one where a vehicle essentially changes the path that it's on or changes the trajectory that it's on. Um, and when you're moving from one orbit to another in space, you're dealing with gravitational issues, right? Um, and so really good transfer orbits, as I'm talking about them here, are orbits that just don't require a heck of a lot of energy to make that transfer because energy is propellant, right? And propellant is weight and or mass. And so the less of that that you have to expend to get from one orbit to another, depending on what it is you want to do, the better. So it's all about mass in space, all of it. All right. So, so that is gateway, its location, okay, is one that's going to allow easy transport back and forth across these orbits. And by easy, I don't mean super easy, nothing in space is super easy, but easier than some other sorts of orbits. And so it turns out to be a great staging area. You want to stage stuff to go to the surface? Great. You want to stage stuff to go to another location? Great. You want to stage stuff to go to Mars? Great. So there's a lot of things that can be done. The other piece about Gateway is that NASA sees it as an opportunity for international collaboration. It's not the only one. Obviously, we have a lot already going on on the space station, and there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration in any kind of moon loot surface missions, um, but it does see it as an opportunity for, for collaboration. So is it complex? Well, it's a lot smaller than the station. It's only the space, the International Space Station. It's only about one-sixth of the size, and the early version of the Gateway is just essentially a few elements. What about the other organizations and companies that are looking at deep space exploration? You know, we all know we've got SpaceX's Elon Musk with plans to make a heavy lift rocket for deep space exploration, the Starship. Other countries are thinking about doing, you know, trips to the moon and there are plans to Mars as early as this summer. I mean, what's kind of the ecosystem of of all these deep space players coming online? So... With regard to, let me, I'm going to sort of switch topic just a little bit also, but this is a place where I 
I kind of live. Um, and it's how I think a lot about this. So let's talk about that international piece of it first. Um, the United States determined uh, quite a while ago that it was in its national interest to be able to operate both in low Earth orbit and in deep space pretty much uh, with a free path. This is very similar to the law of the sea, right? Which enables people to be able to sort of have free passage and do trade and all the rest of that. And while it's not directly applicable, that's certainly something that's in the United States' best interest. And with regard to our international partners or potential international partners, having the United States continue to demonstrate its commitment to that well over a decade now um, by both funding these, these sorts of systems, okay, and then ensuring that they're utilized over time, that sends a really strong signal internationally. And that signal is really important. Um, so we often don't hear this geopolitical story um, when we're thinking about these systems and you know, how we get there and who's all wanting to go. But the fact of the matter is that, that that's a very important message. And it's an important message to our global uh, partners, okay, from other governments. No, we're in it. We're in it to stay. We're going to continue funding it, even in this crazy partisan environment where you've got so much polarization in politics. Okay, you have bipartisan agreement on the Hill about this, and you've actually had agreement from administration to administration on this, even when they don't seem to agree with anything else. Okay, they agree on how important this is, and that, that's an exaggeration, but it's okay. I'll still exaggerate. Okay, but they still they still agree. They still agree on this. Okay, so internationally what's happening is you've got a whole lot of our partners on the space station as well as other countries that are very interested in collaborating with us, okay, as we move into deep space. And that's an awesome thing, right? So NASA is always talking to its international partners and it's talking to other countries that haven't been engaged as much and are starting to get engaged. We also have countries such as China, which is building a super heavy launch vehicle. We have Russia, which has announced intentions to build a super heavy launch vehicle. And the United States always looks at those governments as well as other governments, both, okay, with sort of a wary eye, right, because our interests are not always aligned, um, and also a slight exaggeration, um, and at the same time, okay, with an eye toward, well, where do the inter where do our interests intersect, right? So that's that's sort of one thing, and it's and it's really a lot of the case about why it's so important for the U.S. to stay there with national assets, okay. With regard to people like Elon Musk, and I'll just throw in Jeff Bezos, okay, and all the rest of that, the things that they're doing right now with regard to development, to me as a systems engineer, really interesting, okay, um, they essentially are taking two different approaches, one of them a very sort of straightforward systems engineering approach, um, SpaceX is taking sort of a rapid iteration approach, um, and so all of that's all of that's really interesting to see these things come online. From my point of view, okay, what we're trying to do is bring as many assets to the table of moving human beings sustainably to the moon and beyond the moon, okay? We're going to bring as many assets to the table as we can get. And by we, I mean nationally, okay? So if you have companies that are building these capabilities and they want to be able to deploy them, then the only question that's sort of available is who's paying for what, okay? How is it that we're going to go about doing that? What are the long-term purposes, both from a business point of view, okay, and a government point of view? 
And for me, it's just like an incredibly exciting time, okay, to see all of this happening after waiting. I got involved in commercial space in 1998, okay, to see all this happening, okay, after all of these years is just an incredibly exciting time. What's next, Dr. Ditmar? I mean, there are so many exciting things on the horizon, so many really cool things that are coming online, but what what still needs to be developed for us to, you know, put these sustainable moon bases or or have a sustainable presence on Mars? What do we need to be thinking long-term in regards to developing these technologies to make something like that happen? I think you exactly just put your finger on it in the last few words that you had there. Good job. Okay. Um, What we really do need to be thinking about long-term is what are the technologies that need to be developed? So um, for the moon, right, one of the things that a lot of people are interested in is what can we use that's there, right, that's already there on the surface. And so you have a lot of discussion about, or even below the surface, right, So you have a lot of discussion about um, what's called in-situ resource utilization, which is really just a fancy way of saying living off the land or using resources that are available to you to produce materials that we can then use, okay, to have sustainable presence. And so there's a lot of talk about water ice, right, on the moon. Um, There's a lot of research and development that's going to have to be done right there on the surface to be able to utilize it. We know where some of that water ice is, but it's going to be hard to get to. Sitting down at the bottom of some of those craters that have never seen the light of day, the temperature is 300 degrees below Kelvin, which is so cold, we can't even think about how cold it is, right? And it's like, so you got to warm it up enough to have machinery that can even work down there, right? So we're probably going to have to use nuclear capability to warm that up. Okay, there's a lot of different... um, paths that sort of need to be taken to be able to do that. So developing that technology, that's real important. Um, Dealing with dust. We don't talk about it. Okay. But the dust problem on the, on the moon is really something else. Um, It sticks to everything. Okay. It goes with you when you move. Um, It can impact machinery. And so there's been a ton of research on it over the years. And that research is going to probably start to get exercised on the surface. And we're going to learn a lot about that as we go. That has applicability to Mars. Doing the um, resource utilization on the moon, that's got some applicability to Mars. We don't know how to land a big mass down on the surface of the Mars yet without crashing it. So we got to do a lot of research and development to figure out how to do that. And all of those efforts are ongoing, right? We want to go deeper into the solar system. We need faster technology. So there's a lot of work on nuclear propulsion that's sort of coming back again. Like there was a bunch of done done in the 60s and 70s and that kind of went away. All right. And it started coming back again. So there are focus groups that are looking a lot at the technologies that need to be developed. And we need to be sure that those are adequately funded with a plan to move them forward, okay, so that we can then fold them in, okay, to all of this stuff, both making them available. You know, one of the great advantages of a government program, the public piece of it, is that that stuff, those technologies, unless they're classified, are available to companies that want to use them. Um, So both making them available to those companies that want to build on it, as well as folding them into the ongoing government programs. So uh, we have a lot of work to do, but it's an exciting time. We've been speaking with Dr. Mary Lynn Dittmar. She is the president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration. Dr. Dittmar, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for reaching out. Appreciate it. That was Dr. Mary Lynn Dittmar. She's the president and CEO of the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration. Still to come, interstellar radio signals on repeat. What do they mean? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute.
You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Astronomers are picking up a strange signal from somewhere in space. Fast radio bursts are puzzling scientists. Where are they coming from and what's causing them? On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we ask our panel of experts from UCF, Jim Cooney, Josh Caldwell, and Addie Dove. Jim kicks off the conversation explaining what these things are. So fast radio bursts, these are a relatively new phenomena that we've uh, observed since the middle 2000s, I'd say. Uh, fast radio bursts is this very short burst of radio light, fast here meaning a few thousandths of a second or maybe even a fraction of that, uh, where we see a blip of radio light that's well above the background radio light. Where are they coming from? What's the deal? That's Space. the big question. Uh, and one of the cool so that would be my next these, question. <laughs> right, excellent question, Brendan. But here's the thing: we don't know. This well, is we one see, of the fun we, things. We see where they're coming from because they're optical, but we don't know what is the thing that's actually producing it. Right, right. We, so we, we know they're coming from that way. Right, mm-hmm. we know they're coming from. Right. So we've mapped them. There's we've seen hundreds of them all over the sky, but we don't really know what the source of this thing is. We have decided that it's not in the galaxy. And we've decided that by looking at... But by the way, that's not, that's not all that easy to do, of course. Yeah. You, know, you see a little blip of light. You don't know how far away that blip of light has come to you from. Let me step back. How do you, how do you hear, see these things? What, what, what's the mechanism to observe them? Right. So this is, this is light, but in the radio part of the spectrum. So okay. much longer wavelength than the visible light that you and I see every day. So we use radio telescopes to see these things, like the Arecibo radio telescope mm-hmm. run by UCF, etc. Uh so we're seeing these, I guess, is better than hearing them, uh, okay. seeing these blips in radio light. And we see them all over the sky. If they were from our galaxy, you'd see them preferentially in the disk of our galaxy, right? If you go at a really dark place, you can see the Milky Way, right? This, mm-hmm. this uh, uh, faint white thing that is more of the stars in our galaxy are in that direction. So if, if these were galactic sources, you'd see them preferentially there. We don't. We see them all over the sky which means that they're from outside of the galaxy, most likely. Uh, what are they, though? What is producing these things? And they're very, I mean, one of the, they're coming from very far away. They're very high energy, a very short burst, but there's a huge amount of energy being produced mm-hmm. in right. that very Although, short period of time. how much energy is the source is producing depends on how far away it is, right? I mean, if it's nearby, it's actually a f- funny story. They uh, A few of these things they have actually localized to the grounds of the telescope itself. People, if you open a microwave oven... Well, it's still going. It turns out to produce a little radio burst really the same length and same kind as that. So uh, it's just microwave ovens throughout Microwave space. ovens. Uh, somebody's Marie but calendar. No. Hey. Um, uh, but these things are obviously, if they're coming from a different galaxy, then obviously the source of this are producing a lot more energy than one heck of a microwave oven. Really yeah. Industrial oven. Right. Could these it, are... Yeah. So you said that we've just kind of discovered these or observed these in, in the 2000s. What, what's been the kind of mechanism for these discoveries why is it why are we just seeing them now well they're very very faint so the the amount of energy that we actually receive from things it's like it's like if you were using your cell phone on the moon it's a thousand times less energy is getting to you from these things than would be getting to me from your cell phone on the moon it's a ridiculously small amount of energy so you have to really be looking for it in order to see these things so this is why we've only recently found them but now that we're aware of their existence and we're are more uh, seriously looking for them, we're seeing them all mm-hmm. over the place. Uh, and recently, actually, the excitement has been that we found a few of them. Most of them you just hear once, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You never hear from again. But recently we found a number of them that repeat. Uh, oh. And that's pretty exciting. And, and 
Astronomers love things that repeat. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I yeah. mean, yeah. scientists do, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's yes. true, yeah. Well, that's great because it, it like, uh, rules out a lot of the possible things. At first, we thought it's maybe it's like collisions between neutron stars or a neutron mm-hmm. star, a black hole, or something like that. Some catastrophic event that produces a lot of energy very quickly and then goes away. Mm-hmm. But if they're repeating, it can't be that, right? It has to be some process that can... Like, you know, a, like a rotating star or a pulsar or something. Right. Someone just heating up signal. their lunch at the same time every, <laughs> right, day. every day. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Just exactly. lunch break. <laughs> so what what are some of the guesses that, that these things could be caused by? Oh, geez. I don't know. When we, we see, re- like, like Addie said, when we see repeating things in space, a lot of times it has to do with rotation because or, or orbiting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could also be something like, you know, I'm, I'm a white dwarf and I'm collecting a bunch of material from a companion and then I do something with that and then I stop doing that. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, there are a lot of guesses, but we don't have the answers yet because... To, yeah, to put that in slightly less colloquial terms. So, for example, <laughs> uh, stars frequently come in pairs and right. they can transfer mass from one to the other. And that can cause one of those pairs to become unstable or have an explosion on okay. its surface. And that could happen in a sort of periodic fashion. So you could have uh, the bigger star losing mass onto the surface of another star and periodically causing these eruptions that it builds up a lot of extra material from its companion. And then it has an explosion that puts out a big burst of energy that we mm-hmm. would detect as a fast radio burst. And then that process would repeat. Is that a possibility? Something like that. Or, yeah, there's some crazy things like things called magnetars. Cool name, right? That, that is super cool. Magnetars, which are just like uh, spinning neutron stars that have very, very powerful magnetic fields. And magnetic fields, when you twist them a lot, do crazy things and can occasionally burst out huge amounts of energy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. a lot of guesses, but right. no, no good answers. You all glossed over my guess that it was a, another civilization out there. It's not uh, aliens, right? So you always gloss aliens. over my you suggestions on that. <laughs> That's not a that's not an idiotic uh, guess though. The, 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 I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn. <laughs> no, that's a, that's on your Jim resume. Kumi I said make non-idiotic suggestions. Um, <laughs> no, people have suggested that is another possibility. Just like when we first saw pulsars, which are these very regularly pulsating mm-hmm. things, we thought, hey, maybe aliens. it's aliens. Maybe it's aliens. So it's conceivable that this is. It's just you know down on the list of possibilities. It's it's pretty low. Probably yeah, not. The, probably not microwaves. The, uh, the, the, <laughs> not Jim, alien microwaves. Not alien aren't. microwaves. Jim was ma- mentioning sun's magnetic field. The sun has mm-hmm. this weird periodicities that we don't totally understand. Every eleven years, mm-hmm. it goes through a sort of magnetic cycle. You can imagine a larger, more energetic thing having a faster cycle of having the magnetic field getting twisted into knots releasing that energy catastrophically and then building it up again over a shorter time than 11 years. Hmm. Uh, someone mentioned the Arecibo radio telescope. This is this giant um, you know, radio telescope in Puerto Rico. With, with that coming online and also other large radio telescopes coming online, are, are they going to be looking for these things? So it's certainly it's a, it's a, a realm of astronomy that has gained a lot of interest recently because of these detections of repeating ones. And so I imagine that uh, more and more of these telescopes will spend more of their time looking for these things. The more of them you see, the, the more clues we'll get as to what's causing them, uh, which, of course, is the, the thing we're really trying to figure out. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of the things with serendipitous events like this is that if you have telescopes that are sort of looking out all the time, so these big survey telescopes or telescopes that are sort of Kepler, right? we find exoplanets because we're just looking all the time. If you have telescopes doing that, it makes it easier to find things like this that you don't really know where or when to look for them. That was Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, physicists at the University of Central Florida. They also host a podcast called Walk About the Galaxy. Check it out wherever you download your podcast or on their website, walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for I'd Like to Know, send it in. 
Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org. You can send me a tweet at AEWTYMars or find us on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet Podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Danielle Pryor. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.